Chapter Thirteen of Lavender and Old Lace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. Lavender and Old Lace by Myrtle Reed. Chapter Thirteen. Plans. Hepsy had been gone an hour before Mrs. Ball realized that she had sent away one of the witnesses of her approaching wedding. It don't matter," she said to Ruth. "I guess there's others to be had. I've got the dress and the man and one of 'em, and I have faith that the other things will come. Nevertheless, the problem assumed undue proportions. After long study, she decided upon the minister's wife. If twain't that the numbskulls round here couldn't understand two weddings," she said, "I'd have it in the church as me and James first planned." Preparations for the ceremony went forward with Aunt Jane's customary decision and briskness. She made a wedding cake, assisted by Mr. Ball, and gathered all the flowers in the garden. There was something pathetic about her pleasure. It was as though a wedding had been laid away in lavender, not to see the light for more than thirty years. Ruth was to assist in dressing the bride, and then go after the minister and his wife, who, by Aunt Jane's decree, were to have no previous warning. It ain't necessary to tell 'em beforehand, not as I see," said Mrs. Ball. "You must ask first if they're both to home, and if only one of 'em is there, you'll have to find somebody else. If the minister's to home and his wife ain't gaddin', he'll get them four dollars in James's belt, leavin' an even two hundred. Or do you think two dollars would be enough for a plain marriage? I'd leave that to Uncle James, Auntie. I reckon you're right, Ruth. You've got the Hathaway sense. The old wedding gown was brought down from the attic and taken out of its winding sheet. It had been carefully folded, but every crease showed plainly, and parts of it had changed in color. Aunt Jane put on her best foretop, which was entirely dark, with no softening gray hair, and was reserved for occasions of high state. A long brown curl, which was hers by right of purchase, was pinned to the hard, uncompromising twist at the back of her neck. Ruth helped her into the gown, and as it slipped over her head, she inquired from the depths of it, "Is the front door locked?" Yes, Auntie, and the back door too. Did you bring up the keys as I told you to? Yes, Auntie, here they are. Why? There was a pause. Then Mrs. Ball said solemnly, "I've read a great deal about bridegrooms havin' wanderin' fits immediately before weddin's. Does my dress hike up in the back, Ruth? It was a little shorter in the back than in the front, and cleared the floor on all sides since she had grown a little after it was made. But Ruth assured her that everything was all right. When they went downstairs together, Mr. Ball was sitting in the parlor. Plainly nervous. Now, Ruth said, "Aunt Jane, you can go after the minister. My first choice is Methodist, after that Baptist, and then Presbyterian. I will entertain James during your absence." Ruth was longing for fresh air and gladly undertook the delicate mission. Before she was halfway down the hill, she met Winfield, who had come on the afternoon train. "You're just in time to see a wedding," she said, when the first raptures had subsided. "Whose wedding, sweetheart? Ours." Far from it," answered Ruth, laughing. "Come with me, and I'll explain." She gave him a vivid description of the events that had transpired during his absence, and had invited him to the wedding before it occurred to her that Aunt Jane might not be pleased. "I may be obliged to recall my invitation," she said seriously. "I'll have to ask Auntie about it. She may not want you." "That doesn't make any difference," announced Winfield in high spirits. "I'm a goin' to the weddin', and I'm a goin' to kiss the bride if you'll let me." Ruth smothered a laugh. You may if you want to, and I won't be jealous. Isn't that sweet of me? You're always sweet, dear. Is this the abode of the parson? The Methodist minister was at home, but his wife was not, and Ruth determined to take Winfield in her place. The clergyman said that he would come immediately, and as the lovers loitered up the hill, they arrived at the same time. 
Winfield was presented to the bridal couple, but there was no time for conversation, since Aunt Jane was in a hurry. After the brief ceremony was over, Ruth said wickedly, "'Auntie, on the way to the minister's, Mr. Winfield told me he was going to kiss the bride. I hope you don't mind.' Winfield looked unutterable things at Ruth, but nobly fulfilled the obligation. Uncle James beamed upon Ruth in a way which indicated that an attractive idea lay behind it, and Winfield created a diversion by tipping over a vase of flowers. "'He shan't,' he whispered to Ruth. "'I'll be darned if he shall.' Ruth, said Aunt Jane, after a close scrutiny of Winfield, if you'd relay an out to marry that awkward creetur, what ain't accustomed to a parlor, you'd better do it now, while him and the minister are both here. Winfield was willing, but Ruth said that one wedding at a time was enough in any family, and the minister, pledged to secrecy, took his departure. The bride cut the wedding cake, and each solemnly ate a piece of it. It was a sacrament rather than a festivity. When the silence became oppressive, Ruth suggested a walk. "'You will sit here, niece Ruth,' remarked Aunt Jane, "'until I have changed my dress.' Uncle James sighed softly as she went upstairs. "'Well,' he said, "'I'm married now, hard and fast, "'and there ain't no help for it, world without end.' "'Cheer up, Uncle,' said Winfield consolingly. "'It might be worse.' "'It's come on me all of a sudden,' he rejoined. "'I ain't had no time to prepare for it, as you may say. "'Little did I think, three weeks ago, as I sat in my little store,' what was worth four or five hundred dollars, that before the month was out I'd be married. Me, married, he exclaimed, me, as never thought of such. When Mrs. Ball entered, clad in sombre calico, Ruth, overcome by deep emotion, led her lover into the open air. It's bad for you to stay in there, she said gravely, when you are destined to meet the same fate. I've had time to prepare for it, he answered. In fact, I've had more time than I want. They wandered down the hillside with aimless leisure, and Ruth stopped to pick up a large grimy handkerchief, with C.W. in the corner. "'Here's where we were the other morning,' she said. "'Blessed spot,' he responded. "'Beautiful Hepsy and noble Joe. By what humble means are great destinies made evident? You haven't said you were glad to see me, dear.' "'I'm always glad to see you, Mr. Winfield,' she replied primly. "'Mr. Winfield isn't my name,' he objected, taking her into his arms. "'Carl,' she whispered shyly to his coat-collar. "'That isn't all of it.' "'Carl, dear,' said Ruth, with her face crimson. "'That's more like it. Now let's sit down. I've brought you something, and you have three guesses. Returned manuscript? No, you said they were all in. Another piece of Aunt Jane's wedding cake? No, guess again. Chocolates. Who'd think you were so stupid?' he said, putting two fingers into his waistcoat pocket. "'Oh!' Ruth gasped in delight. "'You funny girl. Didn't you expect an engagement ring? Let's see if it fits.' He slipped the gleaming diamond on her finger, and it fitted exactly. "'How did you guess?' she asked after a little. "'It wasn't wholly guesswork, dearest.' From another pocket he drew a glove, of grey suede, that belonged to Ruth's left hand. "'Where did you get that?' "'By the log across the path, that first day, when you were so cross to me.' "'I wasn't cross.' "'Yes, you were. You were a little fiend.' "'Will you forgive me?' she pleaded, lifting her face to his. "'Rather.' He forgave her half a dozen times before she got away from him. "'Now let's talk sense,' she said. "'We can't. I never expect to talk sense again.' "'Pretty compliment, isn't it?' she asked. "'It's like your telling me I was brilliant, and then saying I wasn't at all like myself.' "'Won't you forgive me?' he inquired significantly. "'Some other time,' she said, flushing. "'Now what are we going to do?' "'Well,' he began, "'I saw the oculist, and he said that my eyes are almost well again, but that I mustn't use them for two weeks longer.' 
Then I can read or write for two hours every day, increasing gradually as long as they don't hurt. By the first of October, he thinks I'll be ready for work again. Carlton wants me to report on the morning of the fifth, and he offers me a better salary than I had on the Herald. That's good. We'll have to have a flat in the city, or a little house in the country, near enough for me to get to the office. For us to get to the office, supplemented Ruth. What do you think you're going to do, Miss Thorne? Why, I'm going to keep right on with the paper, she answered in surprise. No, you're not, darling, he said, putting his arm around her. Do you suppose I'm going to have Carlton or any other man giving my wife an assignment? You can't, anyway, because I've resigned your position for you, and your place is already filled. Carlton sent his congratulations, and said his loss was my gain, or something like that. He takes all the credit to himself. Why, why, you wretch! I'm not a wretch. You said yourself I was nice. Look here, Ruth, he went on, in a different tone. What do you think I am? Do you think for a minute that I'd marry you if I couldn't take care of you? "'Tisn't that,' she replied, freeing herself from his encircling arm. "'But I like my work, and I don't want to give it up. "'Besides, besides, I thought you'd like to have me near you.' "'I do want you near me, sweetheart. That isn't the point. "'You have the same right that I have to any work that is your natural expression. "'But, in spite of the advanced age in which we live, "'I can't help believing that home is the place for a woman. "'I may be old-fashioned, but I don't want my wife working downtown. "'I've got too much pride for that.' You have your typewriter, and you can turn out Sunday specials by the yard if you want to. Besides, there are all the returned manuscripts. If you have the time, and aren't hurried, there's no reason why you shouldn't do work that they can't afford to refuse. Ruth was silent, and he laid his hand upon hers. You understand me, don't you, dear? God knows I'm not asking you to let your soul rust out in idleness, and I wouldn't have you crave expression that was denied you, but I don't want you to have to work when you don't feel like it, nor be at anybody's beck and call. I know you did good work on the paper. Carlton spoke of it, too. But others can do it as well. I want you to do something that is so thoroughly you that no one else can do it. It's a hard life, Ruth. You know that as well as I do. And I—I I love you. His last argument was convincing. I won't do anything you don't want me to do, dear, she said, with a new humility. I want you to be happy, dearest, he answered quickly. Just try my way for a year. That's all I ask. I know your independence is sweet to you, but the privilege of working for you with hand and brain, with your love in my heart, with you at home, to be proud of me when I succeed, and to give me new courage when I fail, why, it's the sweetest thing I've ever known. I'll have to go back to town very soon, though, she said, a little later. I am interrupting the honeymoon. We'll have to have one of our very own soon, that you can't interrupt, and when you go back, I'm going with you. We'll buy things for the house. We need lots of things, don't we, she asked. I expect we do, darling, but I haven't the least idea what they are. You'll have to tell me. Oriental rugs, for one thing, she said, and a mahogany piano, and an instrument to play it with, because I haven't any parlor tricks, and some good pictures, and a waffle iron, and a porcelain rolling pin. What do you know about rolling pins and waffle irons? he asked fondly. My dear boy, she replied patronizingly, you forget that in the days when I was a free and independent woman, I was on a newspaper. I know lots of things that are utterly strange to you, because, in all probability, you never ran a woman's department. If you want soup, you must boil meat slowly, and if you want meat, you must boil it rapidly, and if dough sticks to a broom straw when you jab it into a cake, it isn't done. He laughed joyously. How about the porcelain rolling pin? It's germ-proof, she rejoined soberly. Are we going to keep the house on the antiseptic plan? We are. It's better than the installment plan, isn't it? 
"'Oh, Carl!' she exclaimed. "'I've had the brightest idea.' "'Spring it,' he demanded. "'Why, Aunt Jane's attic is full of old furniture, "'and I believe she'll give it to us.' "'His face fell. "'How charming,' he said, without emotion. "'Oh, you stupid,' she laughed. "'It's colonial mahogany, every stick of it. "'It only needs to be done over. "'Ruth, you're a genius. "'Wait till I get it before you praise me. "'Just stay here a minute, and I'll run up to see what frame of mind she's in.' When she entered the kitchen, the bride was busily engaged in getting supper. Uncle James, with a blue gingham apron tied under his arms, was awkwardly peeling potatoes. "'Oh, how good that smells!' exclaimed Ruth, as a spicy sheet of gingerbread was taken out of the oven. Aunt Jane looked at her kindly, with gratified pride beaming from every feature. "'I wish you'd teach me to cook, Auntie,' she continued, following up her advantage. "'You know I'm going to marry Mr. Winfield.' "'Why, yes, I'll teach you. Where is he?' "'He's outside. I just came in to speak to you a minute. "'You can ask him to supper if you want to. "'Thank you, Auntie. That's lovely of you. I know he'll like to stay.' "'James,' said Mrs. Ball, "'you're peelin' them pertaters with thick peelins, and you'll land in the poorhouse. "'I've never knowed it to fail.' "'I wanted to ask you something, Auntie,' Ruth went on quickly, "'though feeling that the moment was not auspicious. "'You know all that old furniture up in the attic? "'Well, what of it? "'Why, why, you aren't using it, you know.' "'and I thought perhaps you'd be willing to give it to us, "'so that we can go to housekeeping as soon as we're married.' "'It was your grandmother's,' Aunt Jane replied, after long thought. "'And, as you say, I ain't using it. "'I don't know but what you might as well have it as anybody else. "'I lay out to buy me a new haircloth parlor suit "'with that two hundred dollars of James's. "'He give the minister the whole four dollars over and above that, "'and yes, you can have it,' she concluded. "'Ruth kissed her, with real feeling. "'Thank you so much, Auntie.' "'It will be lovely to have something that was my grandmother's.' "'When she went back to Winfield, "'he was absorbed in a calculation he was making on the back of an envelope. "'You are not to use your eyes,' she said warningly. "'And, oh, Carl, it was my grandmother's, "'and she's given us every bit of it, and you're to stay to supper.' "'Must be in a fine humor,' he observed. "'I'm ever so glad. "'Come here, darling. "'You don't know how I've missed you.' "'I've been earning furniture,' she said, settling down beside him. "'People earn what they get from Auntie.' "'I won't say that, though, because it's mean. "'Tell me about this remarkable furniture. "'What is it, and how much of it is destined to glorify our humble cottage?' "'It's all ours,' she returned serenely. "'But I don't know just how much there is. "'I didn't look at it closely, you know, "'because I never expected to have any of it. "'Let's see. There's a heavy dresser, "'and a large, round table with claw feet. "'That's our dining table. "'And there's a bed, just like those in the windows in town, "'when it's done over. "'And there's a big, old-fashioned sofa.' "'And a spinning-wheel. "'Are you going to spin? "'Hush, don't interrupt. "'There are five chairs, dining-room chairs, and two small tables, "'and a card-table with a leaf that you can stand up against the wall, "'and two lovely rockers, and I don't know what else. "'That's a fairly complete inventory, "'considering that you didn't look at it closely. "'What a little humbug you are. "'You like humbugs, don't you? "'Some, not all.' "'There was a long silence, and then Ruth moved away from him. "'Tell me everything,' she said. "'Think of all the years I haven't known you. "'There's nothing to tell, dear. "'Are you going to conduct an excavation into my past?' "'Indeed I'm not. "'The present is enough for me, "'and I'll attend to your future myself.' "'There's not much to be ashamed of, Ruth,' he said soberly. "'I've always had the woman I should marry in my mind, "'the not impossible she, "'and my ideal has kept me out of many a pitfall. "'I wanted to go to her with clean hands and a clean heart, "'and I have. "'I'm not a saint, but I'm as clean as I could be "'and live in the world at all.' Ruth put her hand on his. "'Tell me about your mother.' 
A shadow crossed his face, and he waited a moment before speaking. "'My mother died when I was born,' he said with an effort. "'I can't tell you about her, Ruth. She—she wasn't a very good woman.' "'Forgive me, dear,' she answered, with quick sympathy. "'I don't want to know.' "'I didn't know about it until a few years ago,' he continued, "'when some kindly disposed relatives of fathers gave me full particulars. "'They're dead now, and I'm glad of it. She—she drank.' "'Don't, Carl,' she cried. "'I don't want to know.' "'You're a sweet girl, Ruth,' he said tenderly, touching her hand to his lips. "'Father died when I was ten or twelve years old, and I can't remember him very well, though I have one picture, taken a little while before he was married. He was a moody, silent man, who hardly ever spoke to anyone. I know now that he was broken-hearted. I can't remember even the tones of his voice, but only one or two little peculiarities.' He couldn't bear the smell of lavender, and the sight of any shade of purple actually made him suffer. It was very strange. "'I've picked up what education I have,' he went on. "'I have nothing to give you, Ruth, but these.' He held out his hands, and my heart. "'That's all I want, dearest. Don't tell me any more.' A bell rang cheerily, and when they went in, Aunt Jane welcomed him with apparent cordiality, though a close observer might have detected a tinge of suspicion. She liked the ring on Ruth's finger— which she noticed for the first time. "'It's real pretty, ain't it, James?' she asked. "'Yes, am "'Tis so. "'It's just come to my mind now that you never give me no ring except this here one we was married with. I guess we'd better take some of that two hundred dollars you've got sewed up in that unchristian belt you insist on wearin', and get me a ring like Ruth's, and use the rest for furniture. Don't you think so?' "'Yes, am he replied. "'Ring and furniture, or anything you'd like.' "'James is real indulgent,' she said to Winfield." with a certain modest pride, which was at once ludicrous and pathetic. "'He should be, Mrs. Ball,' returned the young man gallantly. She looked at him closely, as if to discover whether he was in earnest, but he did not flinch. "'Young feller,' she said, "'you ain't layin' out to take no excursions on the water, be you?' "'Not that I know of,' he answered. "'Why?' "'Seafarin' is dangerous,' she returned. "'Mis' Ball was terrible seasick comin' here,' remarked her husband. "'She didn't seem to have no sea-legs, as you may say.' "'Ain't you tired of dwellin' on that?' asked Aunt Jane, sharply. "'Tain't no disgrace to be seasick, and I wasn't the only one.' Winfield came to the rescue with a question, and the troubled waters were soon calm again. After supper, Ruth said, "'Auntie, may I take Mr. Winfield up to the attic, and show him my grandmother's things that you've just given to me?' "'Run along, child. Me and James will wash the dishes.' "'Poor James,' said Winfield, in a low tone, as they ascended the stairs. "'Do I have to wash dishes, Ruth?' "'It wouldn't surprise me. You said you wanted to work for me, and I despise dishes. "'Then we'll get an orphan to do em. I'm not fitted for it, and I don't think you are.' "'Say, isn't this great?' he exclaimed, as they entered the attic. "'Trunks, cobwebs, and old furniture. Why have I never been here before?' "'It wasn't proper,' replied Ruth primly, with a sidelong glance at him. "'No, go away.' They dragged the furniture out into the middle of the room, and looked it over critically. There was all that she had described, and unsuspected treasure lay in concealment behind it. "'There's almost enough to furnish a flat,' she cried, in delight. He was opening the drawers of a cabinet, which stood far back under the eaves. "'What's this, Ruth?' "'Oh, it's old blue china, willow pattern. How rich we are!' "'Is old blue willow pattern china considered beautiful?' "'Of course it is, you goose. We'll have to have our dining-room done in old blue now, with a shelf on the wall for these plates.' "'Why can't we have a red dining-room?' "'because it would be a fright. "'You can have a red den if you'd like.' "'All right,' he answered. "'But it seems to me it would be simpler "'and save a good deal of expense "'if we just pitched the plates into the sad sea. "'I don't think much of them.' 
"'That's because you're not educated, dearest,' returned Ruth sweetly. "'When you're married, you'll know a great deal more about China. You see if you don't.' They lingered until it was so dark that they could scarcely see each other's faces. "'We'll come up again tomorrow,' she said. "'Wait a minute.' She groped over to the east window, where there was still a faint glow, and lighted the lamp, which stood in its accustomed place, newly filled. "'You're not going to leave it burning, are you?' he asked. "'Yes. Aunt Jane has a light in this window every night.' "'Why, what for?' "'I don't know, dearest. I think it's for a lighthouse, but I don't care. Come, let's go downstairs.' End of chapter 13